And if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter because I'm not up here next week anyway. So. Uh, for those that are visiting, uh, as we said earlier, Pastor Tim is on vacation with his wife, so they're spending some time uh, refreshing as a couple. Uh, so we're excited. The elders were glad to be able to do that. Uh, so for those visiting, my name is Matt. I'm one of the elders here at the church. Uh, I did notice that Josiah was setting up cameras, though. So uh, if, if Pastor Tim's using spy cameras, I think he needs to pick smaller ones because they're, they're pretty noticeable. So that's another reason why I stepped down here. I'm out of camera sight of that one. Um, but today is uh, Mother's Day. We want to take some, you know, make some mention about. Are you shifting that camera? Oh, OK. All right. OK. Uh, so, uh, today is Mother's Day. So we, we do want to acknowledge mothers. Um, Mother's Day can be a challenging day uh, for mothers that aren't able, you know, women that want to be mothers and uh, and aren't able to be or, or kids that don't have mothers. Uh, so we obviously do want to be sensitive to all of the different dynamics of Mother's Day. Uh, but we do uh, want to take this time and, and thank thank God for mothers because uh, they are a gift um, they are a gift to us. So to all the mothers in the room and new mothers, welcome, Paige. Uh, good to see you uh, with little Grayson this morning. Uh, so we do want to thank God for mothers uh, this morning. Uh, so we are continuing our five-year study through First Peter. Uh, so um, we're, we'll be in First uh, Peter. Normally, Pastor Tim has been preaching through Romans. I asked him a few years ago if I could do a little sermon series on First Peter Whenever he's away, that's so that's what I've been filling in for. So uh, we're three sermons into this. I think it's been about a year and a half already. So um, so we'll be in first Peter chapter two this morning uh, because of the nature of this series, because uh, the last sermon I preached on this was last fall. Uh, so this is a there's large gaps between the sermons in this series. Uh, because of that, we're just doing a thirty thousand a uh, mile high flyover of First Peter. So this is a very broad, uh, generalized view of First Peter from 30,000 feet. Uh, whereas, as we've been studying through Romans, we've been going, you know, small sections at a time. Uh, but if we did that with First Peter, it'd be a 10-year sermon series, and uh, that's a long time. So, uh, so we'll be in First Peter two this morning. Again, this is going to be, uh, we're going to do a large section of it. Uh, I'm going to read through the verses here, and then, um, and then we'll, get, uh, we'll get into it. First uh, Peter 2, uh, starting in verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were designed, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Father, we thank you uh, this morning for this passage uh, as we come to First Peter chapter 2. Uh, Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work uh, in our hearts and in our minds, that you would open our eyes to see the truth that you would have for us this morning, uh, that you would convict where we need convicting, where, that you would encourage where we need encouraging, that you would motivate and challenge us where we need challenge in our lives. Father, we thank you that your spirit does that work in us, uh, and that your spirit accomplishes all of those things uh, to, in different capacities in each one of us. Father, we love you, and we thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, and we pray this in his precious name. Amen. So if you notice there in the, in the bulletins, uh, the sermon this morning is entitled, A Precious Stone and Royalty. Uh, we are in First Peter 2. Now, last sermon, uh, which was last fall, the title was Now What? Uh, so that was the title that we looked at last, uh, last fall. That was the second part of chapter 1. And we see that these verses, this is a very small letter that, that Peter is writing to the church. Uh, these verses flow uh, very easily uh, and they connect uh, to one another. Normally, this letter would have just been read in one reading all at one time to the church. Uh, but in the last sermon, in the last text, we saw the command to be holy. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 1, uh, Peter describes uh, the church as being born again by a living hope. Uh, that we have this living hope and God makes us to be alive because of the work of Christ on the cross through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're made alive, then what do we do? Uh, the command at the end of chapter 1 is to be holy. So, there, so there, they would have been reading this letter. Uh, there would have been this command to be holy. Uh, there was also some other commands in there. So there's this statement that you are holy, but then there's also recommendations on how to live holy. Uh, so that's, that's what we would call sanctification. There's two components to that. There's progressive sanctification and there's possessive sanctification. Uh, sanctification is that process where God is making us holy. We're going to see both of these components in this text today, which is why I'm bringing it up. So there is this declaration that you are holy, that God saves you, uh, and there's this element of being set apart to be holy. But then there's also the work that the Holy Spirit does within us so that day by day we are, as Scripture tells us, we are moving from one degree of glory to the next. That God is doing a work within us that we are sinning less in 10 years than we were sinning 10 years ago. That is that process of sanctification. Uh, and it's happening day by day through the Holy Spirit. And then again, like I said, we are set apart uh, to be holy. Uh, and that, that's noticed uh, kind of in that third point uh, in the sermon outline. So this morning we're going to be looking at three questions. Is it valuable, the precious stone? Is it valuable? What is its purpose? And who are the royals? Now, in case anybody's thinking, uh, we're not talking about the Kansas City baseball team. We're also not talking about the House of Windsor. 
those two also being royals, uh, but we'll find that out uh, as we get to the end of the text, who the royals are. Uh, but just to clarify here up front, it's not those two things. Uh, but before we get to that first point, I just want to look at a couple of these verses here at the very beginning, uh, verses 1 through 3, uh, because this does connect back to chapter 1. The command is to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. I mean, I think those are all very clear commandments. Uh, we, you know, we don't have to dissect those words. We know what malice is. We know what hypocrisy and envy and slander are. Uh, again, these would be commands that are the, that are being expected of believers. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk that you may grow up to salvation. That pure, pure spiritual milk uh, being God's word. That God's word is the milk that we should desire. Uh, mothers of babies, uh, especially infants, there is a strong desire for that milk. Uh, that desire wakes you up in the middle of the night. That desire uh, alters your schedule. Uh, so babies desire, newborn infants desire that milk. Uh, and that's what we as believers are to be doing as well. Infants, newborns, desiring that milk. And then there's this word of caution here in verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So there is a distinction made between people that have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and their desire for spiritual milk and those that have not tasted and seen. There is no desire for spiritual milk. That that desire to grow in God's word is a result of being saved. That that is something for believers. So if indeed, so that, that cautionary word there. Uh, so, so again, this letter being addressed to the churches. Uh, so that leads us right into our first point. So that, those, those verses kind of connect a little bit back with chapter 2. Uh, where, where Paul was, or sorry, Peter was talking about uh, being born again. Uh, being made alive to a living hope, to be holy, and in that holiness put away these things. So then starting in verse 4, this is kind of where our outline picks up for today. That first point, that first question, is it valuable? This precious stone, is it valuable? We see this in verses 4 through 6. A little bit later on, we see it there in verse 7. But it says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So we see these, this, this phrase, this wording of a living stone. So as you, this is Peter writing to the church, so as you as believers, as Christians, come to the living stone. Now this living stone imagery was very common in the Old Testament. Uh, it was very frequently used in the Old Testament. It was used in Psalms 118.22. Isaiah 8:14 and also in Isaiah 28:16 along with other passages throughout the Old Testament. Those three passages that I listed are actually quoted in the text that, that we're looking at this morning. So we see that this Old Testament uh, terminology rock or stone is very common uh, and it's always applied to Jesus. That Jesus is the living stone. So if Jesus is the living stone, is the living stone valuable? Well, certainly. I mean, the question seems a bit rhetorical. It actually is rhetorical. 
think it's the definition of rhetorical. Uh, is, the, is the living stone valuable? Uh, it is kind of important, though, to, to consider this um, in the sense that, in, in the sense of an illustration, uh, my wife and I, Amy, get a chuckle out of the uh, chocolate diamonds commercial. Uh, Le'Veon has created this marketing scheme for chocolate diamonds, which we just kind of chuckle like that's basically just dirty diamonds. Um, just like they have all these extra diamonds and they, they're like, how do we market these diamonds? Um, uh, we can't call them dirty diamonds because nobody's going to buy that. Chocolate. We'll call them chocolate diamonds and then they'll sell because men tend to give chocolate to women and there's this connection between chocolate uh, and diamonds. So they've created this marketing scheme for chocolate diamonds. Uh, they are less valuable than white diamonds, um, but if you, can, uh, if you can spin it in marketing terms, uh, you can make them appear to be more, more valuable than they actually are. Uh, they are, uh, just kind of as a side note, some of them are made that way naturally. Uh, some of them are actually altered to be made brown. So if it's a white diamond and it's not clear enough or it's got imperfections, they can treat it and make it brown and kind of hide all of that and then still sell it as a diamond. Uh, so there are things out there that would appear to have more value than they actually are. Uh, so we want to make sure that this living stone, this precious stone, is valuable as well. So we see that this living stone is Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. Of course he's valuable. And yet the next phrase that we see in this text is that the living stone is rejected by men. Later on in verse 7, uh, and the stone that the builders rejected. So we see that this living stone has been rejected. It, it actually has been rejected all the way to the point of death. That the religious leaders at the time whipped up the Israelites into a frenzy, convinced Rome to kill Jesus. So they rejected Jesus all the way to the point of murdering him on a cross. Now we know the great story, the great news of all of that is the fact that that was all part of God's plan. But they had rejected him to the point of death. But, the very next word, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That God declares this living stone to be chosen and precious, to be valuable. The value of this living stone is determined by God, not by man. That we can try and determine whether or not Jesus is who he says he is. Men can debate this all they want. But God has declared that this living stone is valuable. In fact, he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So this stone is valuable. It also, this passage uh, uh, in the next verse also refers to other living stones. Now, this is separate from Jesus. Jesus is the living stone. But we see that there are, that you yourselves, this is uh, Peter addressing the church, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So there is, there is this main living stone that is Jesus, and then there's all of these other tinier living stones. The same word is used. That those that are saved, that those are believers in Christ, the church, are sons and daughters of God, just like Jesus is a son of God. That we are united as a family. And that we are connected to Christ. 
when you think of a building being built, and we'll kind of get to this in point two, what is its purpose, but when you think of a building being built, all of the stones that compose of that building here, this temple that's being built, they're all connected to one another. So there is a connection that believers and the church has to Christ. So point number two, what is its purpose? What is the purpose of this living stone? What we see here in in the verses uh, coming up, verses 6, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So in this text, we see the purpose of that living stone is to be a cornerstone, that Jesus is the cornerstone. Now, a lot of times in construction today, we don't really talk about cornerstones as much uh, with steel construction and I-beams that are, you know, steel frames that are built on concrete slabs. We're not really dealing with cornerstones anymore. And, and a lot of times if a cornerstone's laid for the foundation of a house, it's down at the very bottom and then it's covered up with dirt and we don't really see it. But in ancient times, the cornerstones would have been massive. Uh, the temple that Herod built in Jerusalem, the Herodian stones that were used were infamous for their size, their massive size. Some of these stones were 33 feet long by 3 to 5 feet deep and 5 feet high. So these are significant stones. So if you're setting a cornerstone of that size here and you're directing it that way. Now you picture a stone that's 33 feet long. I mean, imagine how big the building is that a stone of that size. I mean, this isn't a 40-foot building. Uh, you know, that, the cornerstone would make up most of the wall. So this is, a, this is a building that's maybe a football field, five football fields long. So if I set this stone and it's directed this way and, it's, and it's, this is exactly where we want it, when you get 500 yards down, it's going to be right in line. Now, if I alter that stone just an inch, if I was a better mathematician, I would know all of the measurements for this. But if you alter that stone just an inch this way, till you get 500 yards, now you're talking about a, a significant difference from where it was supposed to be. So the laying of cornerstones in the ancient world was very specific and very important. The cornerstone was the first stone that was laid, and it determined the orientation and it established the foundation of that building. It determines the strength of that building as well. Because if you have a weak cornerstone, then you don't have a strong foundation for a building to be built upon. So it determines the strength, the location, the orientation of a building, and all the other stones are connected to that cornerstone being the first one that's laid. So going back to a few verses earlier where it talked in verse 4 about Jesus being the living stone, uh, that is evidence of the fact that Christ is alive now. He's, this isn't a dead stone. That Jesus had died on the cross but was raised back to life. So this is evidence of a living, resurrected stone. The cornerstone being the first one that's laid, which means that's the example And that's hope for us as believers that we also will have a resurrection. That our resurrected bodies will be similar to that of Jesus's. 
So we have a hope and a resurrection uh, that is also included in this text. So this cornerstone is determining the length, strength, location, orientation of the, sorry, not the length, the location of the building. All stones are being connected to it. But what also does this text say that the, that this stone is, that it's serving a purpose? This, this other purpose seems a little bit backwards. We can understand a cornerstone that's important. Uh, that cornerstone is chosen and precious. Again, that's connecting it back uh, to verse 4. God's, God's command or God's declaration that this is a precious chosen stone. That whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's hope for us as believers. So the honor is for you who believe. Great encouragement, right? For us as believers. That the honor is for us who believe because of Jesus being the cornerstone. Here's another but, though. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So you can kind of picture that maybe this is a stone that's laying on uh, the construction site that nobody just felt like moving. So all the construction workers are walking by and they're kind of tripping over the stone and it's become a stone of stumbling. Another imagery that we can think of is um, let's say you're lost in the woods at night, kind of wandering around. You don't know where you're at. It's dark. You forgot to bring a flashlight, so you can't see anything. It's muddy. The scenario just keeps getting worse. So you're slopping through this mud, and you're, you're just kind of stumbling around in the dark, not knowing where you're going. And usually when you're lost, what do you end up doing? You end up walking in circles. So you're kind of walking in circles, and you keep tripping over this rock, and it becomes the stumbling stone maybe stomping on it, maybe cursing at it under your breath. This, you know, maybe it tripped you enough that you actually fell into the mud. You know, you try and pick it up, you're angry with it, but it, it's, it's not going to move. So that's kind of what the imagery is for those that don't believe. They're wandering around in the darkness, stumbling over the rock. But going back to that picture of being lost in the woods, when day breaks and the sun shines down and the light reveals what this stone is, you realize that it's, it's actually a, a large stone. It's, it's solid. You weren't able to pick it up because it's too heavy to pick up. And as you're looking at this stone, it's the first stone on a path that leads to rescue and salvation. But we only see that because it's revealed through light. It's only, it's, we see that because our eyes are opened to see the truth. But for those that don't see, for those that are still blind in their sin, that stone that is the, is the beginning of salvation, that, that stone that is providing salvation and rescue, is just a stone of annoyance, a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. Continuing on, it tells us that they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is a, if we think about this passage, it's, it's kind of a, it's a challenge, that's a challenging verse. Because it combines two things that we often like to put in opposition to one another. On the one hand, free will of man, and on the other hand, the sovereignty of God. And we like to, we like to pit those against each other. 
But this verse says that they stumble because they disobey. That, that looks like man's responsibility. They disobey the word as they were destined to do. That there is God's sovereignty over this. Uh, the phrase, again, combining the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. That we are born in sin. That we come into this world in sin and the natural man hates God. There's no desire within the natural man to love or seek or pursue after God. The natural man hates God and deserves condemnation. But God in his sovereign plan has chosen to save a people unto himself. The reason you and I are saved are not because you are smarter than your unsaved friends. You're saved because God saved you. That he raised you up from death to life, as it says in Ephesians 2. But this verse also connects to what Paul wrote in Ephesians 9. So if you, or sorry, Romans 9. So if you, uh, if you can turn with me real quick over to Romans 9. It's just a few, chat, or a few books away. So in Romans 9, verses uh, 14 to 24. And this kind of connects uh, really closely uh, to what Peter is writing there in 1 Peter. Paul writes to the Romans, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he, on whom whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me, then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So Paul is saying to the Romans that when a potter has a lump of clay, he'll divide that lump to make different sized vessels. And just for the sake of this illustration, this analogy, let's say he's making two vessels that are exactly the same. He's making two bowls. So he takes part of that lump and he sticks it on his potter's wheel and he starts forming this bowl. And for whatever reason, the potter decides that this bowl is going to be used on the table. So we're going to make this decorative. We're going to make this bowl ornate. This is going to be a fancy bowl. Finishes the bowl. That bowl gets placed on the table and used for food. For serving food, for, for whatever, whatever needs are needed on the table. But another same lump of clay splits it off takes that same lump, a little smaller piece, decides that this time he's going to make a bowl, but this bowl is going to be a wash basin. 
Uh, this bowl is going to be used for cleaning the floor. It's, it's not going to be quite as ornate because it doesn't need to be. This is a functional bowl. The other bowl is a decorative bowl. This is just serving a purpose. Out of the exact same lump, two bowls are made, but both bowls have very different purposes. And it's up to the potter to decide what he wants to do with that lump of coal or with that lump of clay. And Paul is writing to the Romans and saying that it's the same thing with God. That God is the creator of all things. And we don't know why he chooses some and doesn't choose others. But out of his sovereign will, he decides to make some vessels for honor and some vessels for dishonor. And you know why he can do it? Because he's the potter. Because he's the creator and because he can choose to do that. That it is his will. And we as little vessels of clay have no right to say, why have you made me a wash basin to be used on the floor? It's not our place. It is the will of God. That it is his sovereign will to make vessels to be used one way and not another we see the you know we so we see these 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 themes kind of running through this text that there is a difference between the church between those that believe and those that don't believe that that your hot, that your eyes have to be opened to the truth to understand the truth the the fact that we're saved by God is God's great grace and mercy to us not because we're better than somebody else it's because God in his sovereignty and in his love, chose to save a certain people unto himself. So there's this word of caution and this word of of humility, this, this hard word to those that don't believe that we had just read. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Here we have another but in this text. But you, now he's looking at the, now he's addressing the church again. He's addressing believers. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. So we see right there at the end of what I just read, that that imagery between darkness and light, that we were in darkness, that we were wandering around in the woods, in the muck and in the mire, stumbling over this rock of stumbling, And God shed his light. That we were called out of that darkness into his marvelous light. That God, through the powers of Jesus, the the obedience of Christ on the cross, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, is what saves us. That we're called out of darkness into his marvelous light, and we are made to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. So this is a declaration of God. This is, as we're looking at sanctification, this is not um, sanctification that is ongoing. This is actually possessive sanctification. That God is saving a people, taking them out of the world, not out of the world physically, but saving them out of darkness and establishing a royal priesthood. So who are the royals? Point three in the sermon. The royals are believers, Christians, the church. 
Peter writes this letter to the church and he says to them, Christians, you are a chosen race. The church is a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Now, the language that's used here uh, in this verse and then down further in verse 10 when we get to it, these words, this language, these are all terms that have been applied in the Old Testament to Israel. That God called Israel in the Old Testament these exact same words, that they were a chosen people, a royal priesthood. So the fact that Peter is using these exact same terms in this passage and applying them to the church. Again, he's writing this letter to Christians. He's writing this letter to the church and he's taking Old Testament terms and he's applying those terms to the New Testament church. The reason he's doing that is because of the continuity of Scripture. That we understand that, that, that this whole book, comprising of many smaller books, is one story. That it is God's story throughout redemptive history of Him saving a people unto Himself. The story climaxes in the New Testament with Jesus and then continues on as the apostles build the church. So it's showing that there's a continuation, uh, the continuity of Scripture, but also that the church is the continuation of true Israel because they're connected to Christ. As we saw earlier in this passage, the living stones that are all being built up to be this temple, that there's this one living stone that is the cornerstone and all of these smaller stones are being built on it to create a temple. The reason is, is because they're all connected to Jesus. They're connected to Him through faith. And those that are connected to Jesus through faith are true Israel. Now, some people get concerned by this because it sounds like replacement theology. Well, is the church replacing Israel? It's not replacement. That Jesus, that God isn't replacing Israel with the church. This is a continuation of what was started. Uh, we saw this in Romans. So, Pastor Tim's been preaching through Romans uh, for the last several months. We saw the same theme in Romans regarding the wild branch being grafted in to the, the, tr- the, to the vine. That, that there were branches that were already attached to this vine and some of them were cut off. And wild branches, Gentiles, were grafted in. Paul also states that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. That God is making a new creation, a new creature. This isn't, this isn't just an update on an old thing. This isn't, this isn't a new version of the iPhone that's coming out. This is, this is something unprecedented. Something that's never been... This is the, the first phone ever made, not just... Uh, a remodeled old phone. So there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile and that God's grace and his mercy extends to all ethnicities and all people are saved in the same way. That we're saved because of faith in Jesus Christ. That great verse that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. How are we saved? Because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And that we are connected to Jesus Christ because of our faith. And that all of those that are connected to Jesus 
are what we call true Israel. That we are all those that are connected, our sons and daughters of the Most High God. So we are also all priests. This, this verse here says that you are a chosen race, chosen being that God selected you. I didn't, I didn't choose to be chosen. God chose me because he wanted to. So he chose a race and made them a royal priesthood. So as we think about the Old Testament, uh, there was this imagery earlier in uh, chapter 2 about the, holy, the living stones being built into a temple. That's, that's a picture of an Old Testament temple where the Jews would go to worship God. So there, we have that imagery of the temple, but then in the same passage, Peter's also talking about a royal priesthood. So the priests were the ones that worked in the temple. And, and Peter is saying to the church that you are also a royal priesthood. That we are offering our spiritual sacrifices now, just to make a clear distinction, the, the, the spiritual sacrifices that we, are not, that we are making are not sacrifices for salvation. That Jesus paid the price on the cross, and that was a once for all. That his ultimate sacrifice was paid. So, so what is this spiritual sacrifice that we as priests are to be offering? Because clearly they have nothing to do with earning salvation because that was already provided. So what are these sacrifices? The sacrifices that we are to be giving are a life of worship. That we live a life of worship and gratitude towards God for what He has done. And also that we are to be using those spiritual gifts to be a blessing to others. So you think about back in the Old Testament... The Old Testament priests working in the temple were performing acts of worship to God. Those acts uh, included making sacrifices. The high priest had to go in to the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement once a year. So there were acts of worship that they were doing to God. But not only that, they were also uh, performing acts of service to the nation of Israel. That the average Israelite at that time, could not access God directly. That their access to God was through the priests and then ultimately through the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. So the Old Testament priests were worshiping God and they were serving the nation of Israel. So kind of as a point of application kind of tucked in here. Uh, So what does that look like today for us? Well, for one, it looks like us gathering here on a Sunday morning to worship God collectively, corporately, as the body of Christ. So we're coming on a Sunday morning to worship God. There's also times throughout the week we don't only worship here. Uh, There's times of personal worship, hopefully happening every day, hopefully happening multiple times a day. Uh, So there's that act of worship, but then there's also that act of service to others. That we, as a royal priesthood, declared royal and declared priests by God are worshiping Him and using our gifts to serve one another. As I was uh, studying through this text and, and thinking about what it means to be a royal priesthood, I, I, I remembered uh, a joke that Pat, not, it wasn't a joke per se, uh, but uh, thing, something that he mentioned a few weeks ago. Uh, and I think it was one of the, 
Somebody was in the hospital, and I think it was one of the new babies that were born. Maybe it was the Cokemans were in the hospital. And, and people from the church had gotten there before Pastor Tim did. I don't know if you remember him saying, like, he kind of made the joke, you know, if, if he keeps doing that, he'll end up getting, that will end up firing him because he's not, you know, performing his duties of visitation, uh, which, you know, was, was humorous. But at the same time, uh, that's exactly what the church needs to be doing. That we're serving one another. That, um, that the church, that us as believers, that me as an elder and Jeff as an elder, that we can decide, hey, we, we want you and AJ to have a weekend away. That we want you guys to spend some time uh, enjoying one another, uh, get, kind of taking a breather from, from um, the, the busyness of life and the busyness of work to focus on, focus on your marriage and have some time together. Uh, so that I could use a gift that God has given me to stand up and preach on a Sunday. And so that's, that's, that's what it looks like to be the body. That's what it looks like to be uh, royal priests. That we're serving one another. That we're stepping up and serving uh, whatever our gifting and our abilities are. And a lot of times it, it seems like, and I think some of this is kind of dying off a little bit uh, in, in church now and in a good way. But there was this mentality of, for a long time that, well, the pastor is the one that does the ministry. We pay you. We're paying you to do this. So you're the one that needs to always be at the hospital when somebody's in the hospital. You're the one that always needs to be on call. And certainly there are commands, and I don't say this to speak lightly of the office of pastor, uh, especially uh, in a few chapters, we're going to see that Peter has some very specific things that he says to elders and pastors and what they're supposed to do as they shepherd the flock. So there are responsibilities and there are expectations uh, of pastors and shepherds and elders. But here Peter's saying that there is an expectation of all believers. That all believers are a royal priesthood. The Old Testament had one high priest. Pastor Tim is not our high priest. He would be the first one to tell you that. Jesus is our high priest. So we are all royal priests. That God created it this way so that we know that our access to the Father is through our high priest, Jesus Christ. And we, as royal priests, are serving one another and worshiping our great God. These sacrifices are spiritual. We see that we're supposed to be offering spiritual sacrifices. These aren't necessarily physical, mental, emotional. These are spiritual sacrifices. What does that mean for it to be a spiritual sacrifice? Well, it means that it's done through the power of the Holy Spirit. That God has given Every one of us gifts to be used. And a lot of those gifts are different than other people's gifts. It's not that some gifts are better than others. Because that's, that, that's how we tend to look at things as Americans. Well, if everybody's got different gifts, then there's got to be some that are better and mine aren't as good. And, and we kind of create this hierarchy of gifts. God has created us all specifically with specific gifts to be used in his service to glorify Him, and to serve one another. So these sacrifices are spiritual, meaning that they're offered through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is God is, God is the one that gives us the gifts. 
God is the one that, that makes us the way that we are, that gives us certain abilities. Uh, you know, think of them in practical senses. You know, there's, there's guys that are gifted at building buildings. You know, we did this remodeling project. You know, that is, a, that is a gift that God has given somebody to do. Others are gifted at administration. Does that mean administrative jobs are better than... No, they're just different. God made us all different in order to serve one another and worship Him. And we offer these gifts through His... So he, He's the one that gives us the gifts. They're from Him. And then we do them through His power. So, so going back to that analogy of the hospital. So if the people that had gotten to the hospital before Pastor Tim, if their motivation was, we want to get to the hospital before the pastor make him look bad. That is not a gift. That is not being a royal priest. Uh, that is selfish and prideful and wicked. Uh, so so in, an, in that analogy, if their motivation is to get there so they can be first, that is not them utilizing a gift of mercy or a gift of compassion. That's them desiring to be put in front, to be the head, to be prideful. But if their motivation was, hey, we're in the area, the hospital's close by, uh, we're just going to stop in because we love the Kochmans and we want to spend time with them and see the new baby and, and we're excited for them. If that's their motivation, that is all good. That is a good gift from our Heavenly Father for the encouragement of other believers. So continuing on, we're getting close. We're getting close to the end. What a great verse. That he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That there was a time when you were not a people, where you had no identity, that you were just an individual wandering around in the darkness, in the muck and the mire, tripping over the stumbling block. But once you had had nothing but death and sin, and now God has made you to be a people that God has made us to be a family, that all Christians are brothers and sisters in Christ. But specifically, as I look out on, on this local assembly, that we are a family. For those that are in this room that believe in Jesus, that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, that, that we have a responsibility to gather here corporately to worship God, And we have the responsibility to serve and to love and to care for one another. It's not just the responsibility of the elders of the church. It's not just the responsibility of the deacons. God has placed responsibilities on them. But as we see here, that responsibility has been laid on all of us. That we love and care and serve for one another that God has made us a people. That once we had no mercy, once we were at, we were at, the, at the expense and the, and the danger and the risk of God's wrath, that at one time that there was no mercy for us and now there is mercy. That my sins have been covered, that I'm, that I'm washed in the blood of Jesus, 
that I've received grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy. That it's not just past sins that are paid for. That it's the sins of tomorrow and next week and next year that are also already paid for. That God sees me as righteous because of His Son's blood. This language is is brought into uh, this text from Hosea verse 1. We don't have time to... Sorry, chapter 1. We don't have time to go to that now, but in Hosea... uh, there's, there's a point early on in the, in the book of Hosea that God rejects a disobedient Israel. A disobedient Israel is rejected, however, is later restored to a point of grace. In this passage, Peter is applying it to the Gentiles, that same imagery that you were once not a people but are a people. That's Old Testament language that was used for Israel that Peter is bringing into this letter and applying it to the church. That the church, and he's applying it to Gentiles, which at the time would have been scandalous to Jews. And Paul does the same thing in Romans 9. So where we were just in Romans 9, 25 through 26. So finishing out where I had stopped reading. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people there, they will be called sons of the living God. That that Old Testament language that applied to Israel has been brought into the New Testament and applied to us, the church. That's amazing. So this passage then closes with a few application points. It started with a few application points. Uh, that there was that list of, of sins or vices. Um, and it ends with a few application points. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So again, talking to the church, this is us, sojourners and exiles. To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Again, these terms, sojourners and exiles, this this has been a theme throughout this text that we've looked at this morning. These are words that were applied to Old Testament Israel. That God called Old Testament Israel sojourners and exiles. They were exiles in Egypt and sojourners as they went through the wilderness to the promised land. In fact, later on when God establishes His law with them, He has very clear commands to Israel about how you treat sojourners and exiles. And the reason He does that is because He tells them, you were once that. That you care for sojourners and exiles because you were once a sojourner and exile. And Peter's bringing this now to the, the, to the New Testament church. He's applying these terms to the church and saying, you also are sojourners and exiles. I actually love that word sojourner. Such, I don't know, it's just really it's meaty. Um, but it reminds me of a time uh, I, w- I went on a wilderness trip in Canada. And the company that we went with was called Pilgrimage. It was a, 
think it was run by a Bible Baptist college at the time, which is now Summit University or something. But anyway, the, the, the company, the outfitting that they did, they, they were the ones that rented the canoes and the tents. You basically just showed up with yourself and clothing, and they gave you the canoes, the tents, the food uh, for a week out in the wilderness. So the, the company was called Pilgrimage, and on the back of the shirts that we got then when we finished our, our trip said, Just Passing Through. It's like it's a great imagery as you're going through the wilderness in Canada and doing a trip, uh, but it's also great imagery for us as believers in this world that we're just passing through. But there are things that we are supposed to do while we are passing through, and these are the things that are listed. So as we're sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Pretty broad. What is that? Stealing, lying, yes, yes. Adultery, yes. Abstain from all of those things. From the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That these sins are not just accidents, they're not just mistakes. That these sins of the flesh, the sins uh, that so uh, encumber us, are actually waging war against us. And we must fight against those through the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we're waging war against those sins, um, in the, I, lo- I love the imagery from Matt Chandler as we're going through his, uh, his series in small groups. Uh, so if you're not a part of a life group, this is a plug to get involved in a life group. Uh, but he talks about sin as a lion. And he describes we need to drag the lion out in the middle of the street and chamber around and put it to death. That's that imagery of waging war against the passions of the flesh. And we are to keep our conduct among Gentiles honorable so that they, when they speak against us, because they will, they'll slander us, they'll make lies against us, but we must keep our conduct honorable so that they may think, man, I really, that guy Matt, he's a church guy, he's Christian, can't stand him. But man, he's really nice. Like that's what we want people to say of us. Like they can hate us for, for, for our beliefs and they can hate us for being Christians. But let's not let the world hate us because of our conduct. So the last three things we see here to abstain from passions of the flesh, to live honorably, and to do good deeds. That our conduct is honorable in the midst of a dying and dark world. That we remember that we've been saved. That God has saved us out of His rich mercy and love. Made us to be royal priests to accomplish a task that he has set before us through the power of his Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you this morning for this time that we got to spend in in your word. We thank you for the evidence and the proof and and, and the experience that we've had by being saved by you. That through the power of your Holy Spirit, you've opened our eyes to see the truth that you have raised us from death to life 
that we were once not a people and you have made us a people, that we had once not received mercy, but now we receive mercy. We worship you as the creator of all things, as our loving Heavenly Father who has done all of this to redeem and save children unto yourself. Father, we thank you that we can have a relationship with you because of what Jesus has accomplished. We pray and we ask that you would uh, challenge us and equip us to do the work of royal priests. That we would live a life of worship to you and that we would uh, live a life of service to one another. We thank you again for the great work that you have done. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.